Asia Tech Podcast with Graham Brown and Michael Waits. Hello and welcome to Asia Tech Podcast Stories. We're all about the stories that make China, Asia, one of the most exciting ecosystems in the world when it comes to startups, technology. To do that, to help us understand this ecosystem a little bit better, I'm going to introduce you to somebody who's joining me in the ATP studio today. She is, just check this out, she's the founder of Chozam, which describes itself as the most comprehensive guide to Chinese social media for marketing managers and social media marketing agencies. She's the founder of Alaris, a social media agency that offers creative marketing solutions for China. The Russian Business Club in Hong Kong. Well, I think she'll put me right if I've got this wrong. She founded that. She's also a frequent commentator on all things China and social media, as you can see from her website, ashleytalks.com. And I'm going to try and say her full name, so forgive me if I get this wrong. Ashley Garina Duderenok. Did I get that right? Ashley, welcome to the show. Fantastic. Thank you, Graham. That was the best introduction I ever got. <laughs> All right. Well, there's plenty more as well. I mean, let's put this into context. We were just talking off air, Ashley. You speak fluent, fluently, not just, you know, day-to-day -day conversation. You speak fluently, <laughs> Mandarin, Russian, German, English. That's right. That's right. I bow down in awe of your linguistic capabilities. So you're originally from Russia? Yes, yes. Okay, so before we talk about what you do in China and talk about the Chinese social media market, talk about influence in China, talk about Chinese consumers, before we go there, let's put this all into context. How did you get to China? Because you're from Vladivostok of all places. So put all this into context. Yeah, let's do that. Um, so I was born in Vladivostok, which is by itself in Asia, right? And it borders on China. So basically, when I was born there, I was born in a non-existent country, which is the Soviet Union. And um, uh, we, had, uh, we had a lot of Asians from Japan, Korea, China. I never in, in a million years imagined, you know, to find myself living in China mm. before... Um, you know, I got to school and then I also, I left Russia when I was 11. I uh, studied in UK, I studied in New Zealand. And then at one point I was assessing my, you know, future career prospects and I thought, okay, what is the most exciting place in the world in the coming, I do not know, 20, 30 years? And China and India just topped that list. Hmm. And I decided to, you know, move to China and um, study and work and explore that amazing country. Wow. Um, most of the people that that time were coming to China because they were really fascinated by the culture or dragons or Kung Fu. So for <laughs> me, it was more of, you know, the cold, uh, blooded decision. Okay, let's move there because, uh, because the future is that. Right. When did you move to China first time? Right. It was uh, the city called Chongqing. So I think we, are call, we call it Chongqing in English. So that's the biggest city in the world population-wise with 34 million people. And when I was moving there, I couldn't find these cities mentions on Wikipedia. So you can imagine, right? Um, I, I still think that right now, very few people know that place. Right, but you said it was the biggest city in the world. So exactly. there's so much, so little we actually know about China. It China, yeah, yeah. It's interesting, I mean, you grew up in Vladivostok. Geographically, Vladivostok, would that be nearer Beijing and Tokyo than it is Moscow? <laughs> much closer, much closer. Actually, to fly from Vladivostok to Moscow, it takes uh, eight to nine hours. Wow. And uh, to fly to Beijing, uh, if I'm not mistaken, it's three and a half. Harbin is one and a half hour flight away. Mm -hmm. um, even Chongqing, I think, is within five hour reach. So uh, it's really cool. And Hong Kong is four hours away. Right. So you're, you grew up I don't know if you felt part of Asia because obviously it was still Russia, but you said there were Asian people around you. I'm just curious to know which point in your life growing up you decided, yes, I'm going to move to Asia. I know you said it was at the top of your list at the time. Was it something that started before that? Were you always curious about Asia? Mm, to be very honest, I mean, the, the, when Russia opened up, right, after the collapse of Soviet Union, the first place that I visited, the first overseas country that I visited was um, – China, hmm. and then it was Japan and Korea, and of course, Japan felt like the future is here, you know, all these opening doors and escalators, that, that I felt like, uh, you know, I, 
the spaceship landed somewhere in the middle of uh, of our planet and I'm there. Mm. But China was very different. It was still a developing economy. It was very crowded. So I was not fascinated by China, um, uh, you know, in particular, the country, the people, the language. I didn't have particular interest before um, I just saw how fast it is growing and developing and how little we in the West know about it. And because, as I mentioned, I studied in England and New Zealand, I saw that, okay, in Russia, we actually have much closer ties or had much closer ties with mainland China. Before, um, uh, you know, most of the international businesses, they were going to China through Taiwan or Hong Kong. But Russians were the, probably the first foreigners that entered China directly. So in 90s, in early 2000s, a lot of businesses started moving in, setting up logistics um, sourcing, uh, you know, all sort of trade companies. So I didn't feel that it was something so secret and something so different. Um, and in the West, very little understanding uh, was still there. So mm. I just gave it a try. Yeah, this this bit fascinates me. This this bit about understanding of China, because you, you've mentioned a couple of things already. You mentioned Chongqing, like for example, 34 million people, biggest city in the world not even on Wikipedia when you first looked at it. And you talk about this understanding of China and how we outside of China understand so little. Now, you've moved around a lot. You, you, you said you lived in the UK. You studied in New Zealand as well. You also speak German and you came from Russia. I mean, you've lived in many different cultures and each of these cultures has very, I suppose, interesting views of each other. And yeah. I suppose when you moved to these cultures, you were always sort of challenged and you found people who sort of challenged your views as well. Did you feel it's like a theme in your your career and your education that you're always kind of telling people it's not like that here, it's kind of like this. And you were showing people what these places were really like. I think so. I think there's definitely that element present, especially when you move a lot, when you also represent a culture that is underrepresented abroad. Right, so I think you just learn to listen and you learn to um, also act on what you on what you've heard and what you experience. Yeah, so we all have uh, country branding somehow deeply installed in our brain. Mm. We we know that Russia is vodka, France is I do not know champagne, right, and uh, China is mo tai or something, but. Uh, when you look at people and when you move to those countries, you get a deeper understanding of what's going on. So um, I I felt that Asia was always a part of you know of my identity in a way because I I just had so much uh, so much exposure to Asian people to Asian cultures and moving around I sort of brought that with me you know going to UK or going to mm. New Zealand like in New Zealand for instance in our international school. Uh, we had so many Asian uh, international students. I would say that time it was already 30 to 40 percent yeah, of international students. They were coming from Asia. Right now, I think that number is close to 80 yeah. so, percent. But, but those people were outsiders. You know, locals would not interact with them. They would, they, they would not you know, appreciate the differences in culture. They would not appreciate, you know, they would not give them a chance. And um, for me, as you know, somebody coming from Russia and speaking the language and understanding both, I think I, I was always trying to act as a bridge and, you know, trying to learn from the boys. So, mm. Just, Why didn't you do that for Russia? Because, I mean, Russia is such a big market and it must have crossed your mind at some stage. And it, it's, you know, I mean, geographically, economically, it's a sizable market. It, you know, I mean, obviously China is bigger, but Russia compared to most western economies it's right up there and also it's it's a market that has as you say this kind of branding which may work against it that people feel that they don't really understand the russians or they can't do business in russia so you must have had an opportunity to do this for russia but you chose china i'm just curious to know us why you chose china over russia because they were both growth markets at the time right yeah definitely but just the scale of that growth is not to be compared russia is um, you know, it was, in my opinion, a growing market um, in late 90s, in early 2000s. But in the past 10 to 15 years, due to various reasons, you know, political, non-political, economical, etc., this market is becoming more and more difficult. And um, I never really felt 
you know, a part. I never worked in Russia. You know, all my professional life and my higher education happened outside of my home country. So I never really felt like I was the insider and that I knew the, you know, the people and I knew the, the way business is done well enough, uh, you know, to, to go and do something with that information, that knowledge and actually help somebody solve their problems. China was different. I came as an outsider with the uh, goal to learn how do they think, how do they do things, and what is, I mean, what are all those concepts like Guanxi, uh, what is the concept of, uh, again, China consumer, what is driving this country, what is this special type of communism, you know, who is Deng Xiaoping, and what are the three representatives, etc., etc., etc. So, I, and once you learned, once you accumulated that knowledge, um, then you want to share it and you want to, you know, act on it and you are given opportunities. I think it's a little bit like, you know, what they say, the best English language teachers are actually not native speakers. So they learn the language themselves and now they know how to pass this knowledge further. Hmm. And if you're a native speaker, it just comes to you easily and you, you don't know how to explain a lot of things just because you grew up with it and you internalize it so much. So maybe that's also the reason, being Russian, you, you know, there's a lot of things that come to you too naturally. You didn't learn it. You didn't sweat to get that, to get to that level of understanding. You didn't look into it deep enough. And China was uh, was exactly the market where I did all that. Very interesting. There's a lot of very fascinating points that you raised there, Ashley. And you talk about being an outsider coming to China, and you have expressed that as an advantage because you know if you were an insider in Russia you wouldn't have seen the kind of things that were useful or valuable to brands or you know marketing managers that were insights because they were just natural everyday things for you right but in china you you you've come from the outside so you look at things in a different way and it's it's interesting here because i mean i live in japan and there's actually a, the word they use for i mean i'm sure this is similar in mandarin but you can correct me but the word that they use in japanese for foreigners is gaijin, which basically translates directly to outside person. Yeah. So mm -hmm. I'm sure in the the, the the script is probably similar in Mandarin as well, right? So yeah. yeah. It's, I find that it's just fascinating because you put yourself in that situation willingly, and this sort of bringing us around to understanding the Chinese consumers. Do you feel you have an advantage understanding Chinese consumers that maybe even Chinese social media experts can't see? Definitely. That's, there's no question about that. Actually, I give a lot of talks for mainland Chinese teams that are running, you know, running their marketing and, you know, um, focus groups, etc. And what I hear repeatedly is that they say, Ashley, you understand Chinese market and Chinese consumers better than we do. And the reason being, again, you come, you have just a different starting point. And also, I was fortunate enough to witness the transformation from where they started. 12 years ago, you know, as evolving consumers where this whole craze just started picking up from the major cities like Beijing and Shanghai and a little bit of Guangzhou to where it is now, Chinese consumers being the most sophisticated consumers in the world, the most tech-savvy, the most demanding. They are not following anymore, right? They are leading the market, not only uh, inside China, but also globally. They are telling you, they are educating the brand, they are telling you what to do and how to service them better. And I am convinced that this trend is only to, uh, you know, is only to continue. And, um, yeah. Okay. Well, let's talk about those Chinese consumers then, especially in the context of brands looking at China. So, obviously, it's a very attractive market, China, for foreign brands to get into i mean the retail market in china alone is just worth under five trillion dollars which is bigger than the u.s market and the e-commerce yeah. market alone in china surpassed the u.s e-commerce market making it the biggest one in the world so as ashley says they're one of the most demanding and advanced consumers in the world so let's understand these chinese consumers a little bit better so do you have brands coming into china now who are trying to get an understanding of Chinese consumers. And I'm just curious to know, are there, there case studies of brands who have got it right and are there brands who have got it very wrong? Yeah, yeah. So talking about, uh, talking about brands that are getting into China now, I would say that 
the biggest brands are already in China. So basically, if you're not in China yet, and you consider yourself a big brand, then you are too late. The market is very competitive. It's very overflooded. It's very expensive. And uh, it's very difficult to penetrate. If you are a new product starting out in, let's say, US or Europe or any other global market, and you want to introduce this novelty into the China market, then you have you know, options and, uh, and a chance to do that. In terms of companies that got it wrong or right, um, I mean, the oldest companies that were marketing in China, like Nike, for instance, yeah, they were in the market long before anybody else, 20, 30 years ago, and they were investing in this market, um, you know, starting from grassroots. And they were losing money for years and years and years, and right now they are the biggest winners, of course. Yeah, so who, who got it wrong? Um, Starbucks got it wrong. They built, uh, sorry, uh, got it right. Who got it right? Starbucks got it right. They built the whole community around this concept, you know, uh, getting into cafe and relaxing and, you know, being who, who you are within this sort of safe community. Um, and given that China is not even the biggest coffee market in the world, people mm-hmm. just don't like coffee. Uh, Pizza Hut got it right. It's not a pizza place. It's a fine dining restaurant, right, for China. Um, uh, McDonald's got it right. It's not a fast food chain. It's a premium, uh, you know, eatery for children. So all these people, uh, all these companies have done extensive research. They've been in the market for many years. They learned to adapt and they reinvented themselves for Chinese consumers. And they have been extraordinarily successful. At the same time, talking about the biggest failures, um, there are several, I will not name, but several Unilever brands, no, several fashion uh, brands, um, skincare brands, uh, car brands that actually had to um, exit China or close down in China or, again, they are present in China just for branding purposes but not making money. Because they, again, failed to reinvent themselves. They failed to listen and act on the consumer suggestions. And um, many, for example, fashion brands do not understand um, that the market is so fast that Korean brands are being cheap and accessible and they are populating, you know, they are just expanding so fast. So you need to be faster, better, cheaper and all that together and available online and available on mobile. So there's a lot of failure stories there. Uh, the same with uh, cosmetic brands. You know, they they don't know what Chinese people want. It's not just whitening products, skin whitening products that they want. But now they want something that talks to them specifically. Or a lot of international brands, you know, bring in shampoos. And on those shampoo packages, you see uh, European faces and European blonde hair. So people do not understand why if I wash my hair with that shampoo, I will look like that. So all these things, obvious, but unfortunately, a lot of big brands, you know, 10 years ago, five years ago, still made those mistakes repeatedly and suffered. When you talk about reinventing themselves, what exactly would that be? Because I I can imagine that a brand manager would have problem reinventing the brand, especially if it was a templated style brand like McDonald's. So I'm what to what extent do they actually change themselves when they go into a market like China? Do they change the product? Do they change the the marketing message? Do they change uh, what extent do they actually go in different to what they have in other countries? Right, they change everything. I mean, if you go to KFC, right? You go to KFC and you will be served yotao. Yotao is a fried dough that is only basically sold in China, just fried long strip dough. And you will be served that in KFC. You can get breakfast porridge in KFC. You can get uh, you can get a lot a lot of stuff. For example, chicken being very popular in uh, China. You can get chicken in McDonald's in China. Chicken wrap, Beijing chicken wrap in McDonald's in China. So they they reinvent the product. At the same time, the marketing message and the whole positioning. They are not positioned as as a fast food chain. And they actually do it globally, right? McDonald's uh, is a cheap eatery in one market. They are a you know, preferred lunch place uh, for business people and professionals in another market. 
And in China, as I mentioned, they are the playground and, you know, premium eatery for the children. So they are investing in, um, in young consumers. They are investing in uh, brainwashing patterns that this is the, you know, Western way to feed your children. This is coming from America. This is beef. Beef is good for you. You know, all those things. So they are reinventing themselves on so many levels to feed the market, to drive the market and to benefit uh, you know, from this market. So are Chinese consumers open and actively uh, embracing what are obviously foreign brands? Uh, do they see that as some kind of benefit that the brand's coming from abroad as opposed to like a domestic brand? How do they react to these large multinationals coming to China? Definitely. So um, I would say I have witnessed a huge shift in this, um, you know, the way consumers receive the brands. So when I was in uh, China, back in Chongqing, my first week uh, in the country, I was, uh, you know, shopping in the supermarket and people were still taking pictures of me because there were so few foreigners right. uh, in the city. And if I would come and grab a pack of cheese, uh, you know, from the, uh, from the display, five people behind me would rush to that same display and... <laughs> the same brand of cheese. And I want to remind you that in China, they don't eat cheese. Mm. Yeah, so it's, it's like us going to supermarket and buying tofu. If you're from Europe, you don't even know what tofu is. And you would never, you know, voluntarily buy it. So they definitely were followers. They were exploring, um, you know, the world. And they were interested. They thought that, you know, Western brands stand for quality. They stand for novelty, something new, something interesting. So they, they were willing to try. And that is something that they are still interested in doing. They want to try new things. They are still very curious. But at the same time, if previously, the only thing you needed to do to sell your product in China was to write on the package made in New Zealand or made in USA, right now you need to do a lot more. So 12 years ago, 15 years ago, 10 years ago, to sell the shampoo, you had to have a European model. Right now, you need to have a Chinese or Asian-looking model to mm. sell that shampoo, right? You also need to make sure that your shampoo is fit for Asian hair. That it's not only saying that, okay, we stand for quality, but that we stand for quality and we adapted the product to solve your problem, specifically here, right now. So um, there are a couple of uh, product categories in China um, where quality is of special concern. And one such category is food, uh, babies. Mm. Um, there's also a lot, uh, you know, a lot of talk on education, etc. So all those things, it's much easier to sell once you are an international company. Also, a lot of niche brands like fashion brands are their niche or jewelry brands when they're niche and small and, uh, and very unusual. So there is huge concern in China now about the food safety. So if your apples come from New Zealand or they come from South Africa, it's good. Uh, if the milk is coming from Japan, you know, before the nuclear disaster, that was good. Right. Or diapers, right? Well, and there was a history, wasn't there, with the Chinese milk? I mean, that's what a lot of Chinese consumers were scared of, right? There was a big, right. I mean, you obviously, you know it better than anybody else, but that changed their attitude towards domestic milk. So they went abroad. That's why they were buying all the, the dairy farms in New Zealand, right? Right, 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 right. Okay. So, yeah, it's, it's all shifting. It's very, very exciting to, uh, to see that, to witness that. Do you still get, just out of interest, do you still get Chinese people asking to take photos with you? Because you're, you know, you're obviously foreign. You stand out. You have blonde hair. Do they, are they still fascinated with you? Or have they got over that now? Has things moved on? Are they, are they, oh, it's just another blonde-haired foreigner. I've seen <laughs> so I would say uh, Beijing, Shanghai, Guangzhou, um, this whole sort of first-tier, second-even-tier cities are definitely over foreigners. Nobody will stop on the street and take pictures. Definitely not. Right. But, but if you go into the country? Yeah, if you go to the country, of course, yeah. Right. Of course, they're interested. They are like, oh, something cool, something different. <laughs> <laughs> Must be a rock star or a film star. Hey, let's talk about one thing I'm curious about is the, I mean, there's been a huge explosion in Chinese tourism in the last five years, at least. And a lot of Chinese people are now going, choosing Asia 
as a destination where you know before they were going to the states or maybe they were going to france but now chinese tourists are going to asia i mean admittedly they're going on very sort of hard scheduled tours of asia but they're still going abroad and now they're experiencing all these different markets like here in japan we have um i mean the last two or three years the the growth in chinese tourism has been phenomenal if you look at all the the designer luxury stores uptown in tokyo now they're all catering they have chinese speaking staff so yeah they're ready and they there's an ex, there's this expression here in japanese which is bakugai which basically translates as explosive shopping and it's only really <laughs> used to talk about chinese you know these busloads of chinese tourists that come to the prada store or the louis vuitton store and just and go, follow the flag <laughs> exactly follow the flag and just go crazy they just, they just clean it out so those now now you have these chinese tourists going abroad and experiencing all these different cultures and coming back to china is that changing anything do you see that impacting their attitude towards brands in china now or how they do things or what they expect of brands that they deal with yeah definitely um so chinese tourists are definitely traveling to a lot more destinations. Yeah, so the first batch of tourists that we saw 10 years ago uh, that primarily arrived in buses were first-year cities, first-time international uh, tourists. They didn't speak languages. They followed the flag and did, you know, 10-day, uh, 20 countries, <laughs> Europe tours, uh, just because, again, for them, that was the experience. Uh, slowly and gradually, that uh, group of travelers has shifted uh, you know to more bespoke tours to more tailored tours so right now that group of people from you know first tier cities the wealthy people they don't do that anymore they have tours catered to them and they go in much smaller groups so that is why you don't see them that much and um, now their younger generation their children the millennials yeah from 18 to let's say 25 years old those people are changing the way they travel and uh, they are changing the way tourism is working because they are not interested in shopping tours. They're interested in experiences. They are going to Asia. Their parents would not want to go to Cambodia or Laos just because they are not interested. But these people go on adventure tours. They travel to South Africa. They travel to Russia, for God's sake. Mm. Right. Um, and at the same time, those people that you are talking about that explore Asia and come to Japan and still buy a lot and follow the flag. So now this is a second wave. So these are uh, second, third tier cities, first time travelers. Mm. And usually they start exploring the market from the nearby locations. Yeah, so they go to Thailand, they go to Taiwan, they go to Japan. And Japan in general is advertised in China as the shopping destination. <laughs> so if you would like to, excuse me, buy the toilet seat, yeah, the electronic toilet seat, yep. which is uh, across the region, yeah, then you definitely fly to Tokyo. And um, the food and the whole, you know, cultural obsession is there. So when they come back, a lot of things, of course, they take a lot of things with them. So... They they see how so for the past 10, 15 years, they've been learning how the West works and they definitely adapted many of those things um, and incorporated them into the Chinese realities. Yeah. Mm. Um, at the same time, to be very honest, the more they go out and the faster China uh, uh, propels and uh, just becomes better and bigger and faster, the more disappointed they come back home. So if previously Hong Kong was the place to look up to, a desired destination, you know, cheaper, better, you know, a lot of fun, a lot of stuff. So right now they come back from Hong Kong and say, actually, it's not that cheap anymore right. to buy luxury goods. It's actually not that fun anymore. It's actually quite old. It's actually, you know, internet coverage is not amazing. Or they go to, you know, places like Japan. Previously, it was all the roses and, you know, and the glitter. But now they come by and say, yeah, it's actually like Shanghai and people are blah, blah. And this is blah, blah. So they, they are also, um, they also see, um, you know, that the rest of the world is not always um, much more amazing than what they have in China. So they start appreciating their country a lot more now. Hmm. 
That's really interesting. I mean, there's, there's so many points in there, but you know, we we can dive just into that alone, and there's a whole podcast episode. But we've got to talk <laughs> about social media, and I think help people understand the social media landscape in China because wherever anybody is in the world, they're outside of China. The social media landscape in their country is going to revolve around three or four major platforms. It's going to be Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, plus some messaging platform. It may be WhatsApp in this country or, you know, a variant. So that's what people are used to. And that's kind of how it is in maybe 80% of the world. So people assume that's how it is everywhere. However, if we would go to China, I mean, those things that I've mentioned, Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, WhatsApp, what's the story? I mean, what is the story of China for those? And then how do Chinese consumers use social media? Right. So since, uh, since a couple of years back, uh, international social platforms are blocked in China. So those people that are living here in the region, they already heard multiple times that there is the Great Wall of China as of Cyber Wall. And behind that wall, there's a, you know, a hidden kingdom. And this is, uh, this is the, you know, the China internet space. Um, so the only international platform, social platform that's allowed in China is LinkedIn. And they are in 50-50 partnership, as far as I understand, with a Chinese operator. And it's a professional network, right? Mm. So for any kind of uh, B2C marketing and um, communication, uh, China has developed over 60 dedicated platforms. Yeah, so mainland China currently has more than 60 um, platforms unique to this market alone. And major two are WeChat and Weibo. Mm. There's also a lot of talk about live streaming and video uh, video sharing platforms. For example, Miaopai, Ijibo. Um, there are a lot of you know information sharing, Q and A. Uh, kind of platforms like Quora, etc. So the, the, the landscape is very different and very exciting and also very broad. So help us understand that landscape a little better. So you've done a good job of sort of telling us that the key players, you've got WeChat and Weibo, these are the ones that you have to know. There's so much more to it than that though, right? But just start with those two. I mean, I don't know enough to comment in any way with authority about the social media landscape in China. But from what I know, from what people tell me and what I've seen is that in many ways, these are the internet for Chinese consumers. You know, like, for example, WeChat. That is, for most people, everything that they do on the internet. I mean, how does it work with the Chinese consumer? Let's take WeChat as an example. Is it just a chat platform? No. So WeChat is actually the operating system for life in China. Hmm. So it is, it, is, it is a WeChat OS just like iOS and Android OS. And I understand that it's very difficult to, you know, to understand it without seeing it and experiencing it. Mm, but let me try to, expl uh, to explain. So WeChat started as, a, as WhatsApp, let's say, for say, yeah, so basically a chatting app, you could create groups, you can speak with your family and friends, you could send voice messages, pictures, uh, videos, etc., etc., etc. Um, it has also introduced official accounts function, which is basically the function for brands to open their official page, just like on Facebook, with a wall where they can publish long articles and push those, those articles to mobile phones of their followers. So essentially, you receive a newsletter on your mobile device from the brand that you follow. Then uh, WeChat also has the payment function, which is called WeChat Pay, WeChat Store, etc., etc. So WeChat integrated uh, online payments, just like Apple Pay, right? Or we can think in Hong Kong here, we have Octopus Card, which is basically a card that allows us to pay on MTR or in grocery stores. So this WeChat Pay allows online, offline, O2O transactions to happen. And therefore, brands are able to open stores on WeChat. And apart from that, uh, WeChat also is very functional. So if you think about it, they really, Tencent is really trying to help solve people's problems. So it's not a marketing platform. It's not just a social networking platform. It's not just a sales platform. Mm -hmm. It is a functional 
platform that helps you solve problems. So beginning of this year, they also introduced something that's called mini programs, which is essentially an app within an app. So within WeChat, you are able to program any kind of app that you can imagine in the world, and it will be accessible on WeChat without you know exiting it, without downloading anything. So you use it, and then you close it, and it's gone. So basically, this functionality is the core of WeChat, and it has all these other things around it. So if that's a good summary, I know it's yeah, yeah. Then, but yeah, really good. Understand? It's it's an ecosystem in itself. So can can a brand simply have? I mean, simply is not the right word, but can it just have a presence on WeChat without a website? in china i would say website in what we understand outside you know because usually what happens is on facebook is they'll have a facebook page which will drive people to a website however on wechat can they just exist in that ecosystem alone without anything outside they definitely can they can exist on wechat so they basically can uh, create their collect their database yeah so collect their fan base on wechat they can market to that database through push content yeah, they can uh, also complete the purchase, complete transactions, right? They can send out coupons, etc. They can run campaigns. They can use bloggers. So they, they can essentially operate business on WeChat. They can accept payments in physical stores. It can be done, yes. Right. So if that's the case, then why do we need anything else in social media? That sounds like it does everything. WeChat is very tough. People are bombarded with messages. Hmm. It's very difficult to incentivize your fans to actually follow you because unless they, unless they, you know, have this huge desire to be a part of your network, they would not agree for you to be on their phone and pushing them notifications and stuff. So um, it's much slower. You you grow your database very slowly. You. Uh, invest a lot of money in advertising or bloggers and you need to make sure that whatever you are selling on WeChat is unique. It cannot be found in offline stores. If you cannot guarantee that, so for say, if you, if you want results right now, tomorrow, then WeChat is not for you because it takes many, many months. Mm. Uh, secondly, if you don't have the budget, to activate WeChat and constantly pour in it, you know, advertising budget, blogger budget, then it's not going to work. Just too much uh, is going on. Back in 2000, I believe, uh, 10, there were uh, 1, 1.4 million accounts on WeChat. Right now in 2017, we estimate 14.1 million official accounts. These are official accounts, not user accounts. These are basically brands that are marketing to consumers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you need the money. And number three, you need a unique product that is not uh, available in offline or any other online channels in China. So if these three elements are there, then you can definitely operate your whole business through WeChat. If one of them is missing, then it's going to be very tough for you and you might need to do something else. So how would a brand get that first contact with a consumer on WeChat? If Let's say the consumer spends most of their time on WeChat and there aren't many other avenues to get through to them, to advertise them. How does a brand actually connect with you? How does it reach out to you? Does it do it through offline advertising, TV advertiser? Or is this, does WeChat offer some kind of access to consumers so you can you know, buy access to lists or what? What is the way that people can actually get access if they didn't have an established base? Right. So the first thing, if it's a new brand, right, once you get into uh, China and WeChat is your major marketing platform, um, I think you need to secure your account first. Yeah, so it's not that simple. You need to have a China registered company or you need to hire an agency that borrows you their account. So basically, your official account shall be linked to China uh, legal entity. Mm. Um, After that is secured, you start publishing content. Uh, even without any followers, yeah, you start publishing content because you want to, you want WeChat to recognize that you are an original account, which means that the content that you're publishing is original. So you tell your story, you talk about all different things. And then you start working through bloggers. Here in the region, we call them KOLs. I think back in US and Europe, these people are called influencers yeah. to promote that message. Yeah. Um, so these key opinion leaders, uh, spread the message. 
You also can uh, use WeChat advertising, which comes in two major formats. One is the moment advertising, just like on Facebook, let's say. Yeah, it's in, injected into your, um, into your wall. And the other one is account ads, which is just a pop-up window below the article. Yeah, so you can do that. On WeChat, there's a minimum advertising budget, um, uh, which is 50,000 renminbi. Uh, basically, 8,700 uh, 8, US dollars, and you need to spend it within four days. Yeah, so you need to kickstart and do all those things. The best way to start is still with some follower base. So, for example, you have existing China consumers back home, get them onto your WeChat. Introduce some sort of, uh, you know, uh, reward program or encourage them to share the news for a reward. You've got some employees in China, get them on your WeChat. You've got partners, get them on your WeChat. So um, that's what you can do. However, for many, many, many brands, it really depends which industry they belong to. But for many brands, it makes a lot more sense to start with Weibo because it's a much more open platform. Things can go public. Things are uh, seen and displayed for, you know, for everybody to observe. So you go to Weibo, you reach some level of awareness and popularity, and then you announce that you are on WeChat. Right. Yeah? So, Just yeah. back up a little bit there so people can understand. I mean, let me talk about it in the terms which are completely outdated now. But when people first heard of WeChat and Weibo, it was kind of like Facebook and Twitter. Was that right? I mean, that's, I mean they've evolved so much now. What would Weibo be more like compared to what we understand in the outside world? Yeah, so Weibo is really a merger between Twitter, Facebook, and plus sales, uh, you know, sales channels uh, and live streaming platforms. So that's what Weibo is. Okay, got it. But that would be a great in into the Chinese social media landscape because it sounds like that would be easier than setting up on WeChat. Because even, I mean, even you mentioned, for example, like, $8,000 marketing budget needs to be spent yeah. in four days. Even for a mid-sized company, that's, yeah. that's substantial because they don't understand the platform. They don't know if it's going to work for them and so on. That's a big commitment for them. So yeah. Weibo and is the first step you're advising here. Definitely. And uh, in terms of advertising, um, you need to understand, and I think uh, a lot of brands need to understand that China is expensive. Right now, everybody's advertising in China, local brands, international brands, overseas brands that are not present in the market. So the ROI that you are getting, let's say, in U.S. or Japan is nothing to do with what you are going to get in China. You're going to get much less for what you spend. So it is an expensive market to penetrate. Right. Um, starting with Weibo, yeah, offers some flexibility. Yeah. So with that in mind, I, I want to know a bit about the, uh, this, is, this is something you know a lot about. So these influencers, so what you call the key opinion leaders, effectively, these are people who aren't brands, but individuals. They may be bloggers or they may just be people who are living a lifestyle, which they're sharing with other people. They must play a big role in all of this, right? So I know we're starting to see this now on YouTube and to an extent on Twitter as well, where you have an Instagram as well where you have people who have large followings and people can now buy placements on those, fo you know, on those feeds right. effectively. Right. How is it working in China? Have we gone beyond just sort of product placement? What sort of things are working with sure. KOLs? For sure, for sure. Uh, so there are four major types of bloggers in China. So the first type uh, is celebrity. So these are primarily singers and uh, um, uh, actor actors. And they are very expensive, right? So they become sort of the ambassador of your brand once they share something uh, on their social networks. And they are very sensitive in what kind of products they endorse. The second type of bloggers are uh, called, um, let's say, KOL. So these are the actual key opinion leaders. These are people that work, um, you know, to collect information, um, rework information, basically present it. Uh, for audiences judgment so they are content creators and they're usually experts they can be they can be running fun blog or lifestyle blog or fashion blog etc mm -hmm. then there are uh, what we call here in china wang hong which in translation means internet celebrity so these are people a little bit like kim kardashian 
who do not necessarily have any um, extraordinary um, you know, skills and, and expertise, but they document their lifestyle. Mm. They can be much, uh, you know, they can be effective and a little bit cheaper than celebrities. But again, you need to see whether they will harm or enhance your brand image. And the last type of bloggers, which is very, I think, peculiar uh, and um, very strong in China, they are called We Media. So We as for WeChat and Weibo. Mm. So this We Media is just like, like let's say, a Time Out magazine or, you know, or any other uh, the Vogue magazine, etc. So they collect information um, for a specific audience group. And they distribute this journal or this uh, information only through WeChat or Weibo. So, for example, you can go to a platform called Guangzhou Chihele and you can find all the information about where to eat, where to rest, where to drink in Guangzhou with discount in cool places. And, of course, these, these are small media companies that, that take money for advertising and placement. So uh, the way that brands work with those influencers uh, is also very interesting. Uh, it's not only, you know, like traditional placement, product placement or, you know, advertising placement. There's also a lot of uh, live streaming going on. So the brands can invite people to a destination or to an event to live stream to basically bring their audience there. Apart from that, uh, there are a lot of sales promotions. Yeah, so just recently, Becky, uh, one Chinese blogger, sold 100 Cooper cars on, uh, you know, on social media. Wow. And uh, not so long ago, um, uh, one Chinese blogger called Mr. Bags, he sold uh, 80 bags within 12 minutes. <laughs> and each bag was from 10 to 25,000 renminbi. Yeah. So, so there, there's a lot of sales promotions. Um, there's also a lot of exclusive collaboration. When a blogger and a brand come together and they come up with limited edition product, and then they basically jointly promote it. Um, so there's a lot, a lot of things, and the, the market is inventing things all the time. There's a lot of uh, bloggers participating in campaigns, and it, it's all, a, it's all very, you know, it's very interesting, and it's very expensive for brands to participate in it. But it is necessary. It is a necessary evil. Yeah, I mean, we're only just scratching the surface of the Chinese social media landscape here, Ashley. I'm sure we could go on. We could, you know, I'm conscious of the time as well. We could make this part two, part three, part four. There's so much more. and There's so many things happening, updating us on a regular basis as well. We need to keep our knowledge up to date. Hey, just before you go, just one thing I want to ask you then, Ashley, is that, you know, can you share with us something that's happening in China right now on social media, which, you know, we will find, like, like an example, like, I mean, you just shared, for example, the blogger selling 80 cars, you know, the Cooper cars, for example. I mean, that's phenomenal that that's happening right now in China. And I see things happening in, you know, in some of the platforms outside of China, like, for example, you know, young teenagers starting uh, walkthrough game channels and getting 10 million, 15 million subscribers and being far more effective than any official brand. So there's a lot that's happening around the world, but specific to China. Is there something that's going to blow us away that we say, Look at this. This will really challenge what you think about social media in China. Where would you point us in direction? Is there any kind of news lately, example of something happening on social media you think would really make us you know, curious and fascinated more so about the Chinese market? Right. I think one of the biggest trends in China right now, in China social uh, in particular, is um, shared economy, the hype about sharing everything and anything. Yeah, so it's huge. Um, young people are extremely excited. So it's not only about sharing bikes and sharing rides and sharing, I don't know, your, your, your mobile phone charges, but it's also, uh, you know, it's also about sharing knowledge and sharing, um, you know, sharing basically houses, apartments, etc. So it, it's really, it's really interesting. Um, another big trend that I see is, uh, virtual reality. So with the introduction of mini programs and the way WeChat is dominating China market, I definitely see that the world is going to be blown away in the coming three to five years with the way and the speed with which China is going to adapt and lead this uh, AR, IR integration 
um, there's a lot of amazing things happening. Uh, and uh, yeah, I think WeChat, Tencent, and you know, young consumers and social media are going to be part of it. Wow, what's this space, Ashley? It's been a real pleasure coming onto the show and, and listening to your story and learning a bit about the social media market in China. Obviously, we're all beginners here, so you know, whatever you've told us today is really just the first step. I'm sure we just got as many questions as we have answers today. So, before you go, I want to ask you to share some links with us because I'm confident that people listening to this are going to be even more curious about not just the Chinese market, but what you do as well. So where can we find out more about you? Uh, you can find more about me personally on ashleytalks.com, which is my blog where I blog about Chinese consumers, China market, and uh, Chinese social media. Um, I'm also on YouTube under Ashley Talks. You can find more about uh, my companies, which is allories.com.hk and chosan.co. And it was a great, great pleasure, Graham. Thank you for having me on the show. I really had fun. And um, it, was, it was amazing intellectual exchange. Absolutely loved it. You are an amazing host. No, 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 surely not. But <laughs> you come back on the show. Actually, I want you to come back on and do as a part two because we've only just started with the social media landscape in China. I'm sure people are going to have questions. And there's going to be news and developments. You shared with us some trends as well today which have got people excited about the Chinese market. So there's always going to be things happening that are worth sharing. So please come back on and do a part two with us. We look forward to hearing from you. So that's Ashley Galina, everybody. She's the founder of Chosan and also the founder of Alarise. We'll put all the details in the show notes. Real pleasure having you on the show today, Ashley. Thanks for coming on. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Asia Tech Podcast. Find out more at www.asiatechpodcast.com.